but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The earth. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series, Witnesses, a study on the book of Acts. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You guys pray with me. Father, we come to you through your son, Jesus, who is the only way we have access to you. He is the only hope that we have before you, and we worship you now through him. He is the exalted king of heaven. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has spilled his blood for us, and his redeeming love is the theme of our song. We want to sing of nothing else, God. And Lord, we need your help today. We are we're weak. We're dust. Creatures. We're tainted by sin. We cannot see your glory as we ought to, and so we need your help. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see how awesome you are. I pray that you would give us a glimpse of your glory. I pray that you would move with power in our hearts. And I pray that you would help me, Lord. That song is so true. I am a poor, lisping, stammering tongue um, that's just weak. Completely unable to grasp, be affected by, speak of who you are on my own. And so I just pray that your Holy Spirit would fill me, would work through me so that we see you. Build your church up, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you guys can open up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, if you don't have your own Bible, page 591 in the Bible in front of you. Uh, We are continuing our series called Witnesses in the book of Acts. And today I'm very excited. I've been excited all four services. I'm still excited for this service because we, excuse me, we get to talk about today, look at one of the most important events in world history. Literally one of the most important events in world history, the giving of the Spirit, the birthday of the church. So that's what we'll be considering today uh, in honor for us to look at the Word. Acts chapter 2. As you're flipping there, I'm going to tell you about my father-in-law. My father-in-law makes the best chili on planet Earth. Literally the best chili. I know some of you women are offended, but my father-in-law makes better chili than even you. And the best part about going to Montana every year is eating his food. Well, a few years back, four or five years ago, we come back from Montana, and I tell my wife, I say, baby, you got to learn how to make your dad's chili. You got to learn how to replicate this stuff. So one, one fall day, it was cold outside, Victoria sets out to make her dad's chili, and I'm pumped. I got my sweatshirt on. I got football on the TV. This is going to be a good day, and, and she calls from, the, calls from the kitchen, chili's ready. So I run in, hustle in, I get my bowl fill it up, get a little cheese, a little sour cream, get my Fritos, head back, sit down on the couch, scoop up, nice big scoop of chili. And it didn't take long for me to realize 
that her chili just wasn't the same as his chili, right? It, it didn't have the same kick as the original recipe. Today, in the book of Acts, we get to look at the very first Christian witness, the original recipe of the Christian life, if you will. And we see Jesus' first followers living as his witnesses and bearing witness to him, starting in Jerusalem and then spreading all throughout the Mediterranean world, just like Jesus commanded them. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 kind of serves as the, the fuel for the whole book. And here's what Jesus says to these guys. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then the 28 chapters of Acts tell us the story of how that actually happened. But this command in Acts 1.8 to be witnesses wasn't just for these first followers of Jesus. It's for us too. Our whole lives are to point to the truth about Jesus. But as I read about these guys and as I observe their lives... And then I compare it against my own experience. It doesn't take long for me to think, man, in my life, something's missing. My Christian life just doesn't have the same kick as theirs did. We're both tasked with making chili, but it's just not the same. And so as we look at the first Christian witness today, as we look at the original recipe in Acts chapter 2, I want us to ask this question. What are the missing ingredients in our Christianity? Or to say it in a positive way, what do we need to do if we want to get back to the original recipe? So Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41, um, I'm going to read the text in its entirety. I can't guarantee a good sermon, but I can guarantee a good passage of Scripture. So we'll read 1 through 41, um, and again, friends, as I remind us every time I get up here, it is an honor for us to have the Word of God. Billions on planet earth have no access to the word of God. So this is the grace of God to us. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only about the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort, exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, let's set the stage. It was Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the three pilgrimage feasts for the Jews every year. So one of the three times a year that people would come, devout Jews from all around the Mediterranean world would gather in Jerusalem. And Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks as we see it in the Old Testament, or the Feast of the Harvest, the point was to come and celebrate God's faithfulness at the outset of the harvest. It's a celebration. Okay, And so picture almost Jewish... St. Patty's Day is what we got going on in Jerusalem, okay? I'm, I'm serious, okay? And as this feast began, the 120 followers of Jesus, that's all there are right now, they're doing the same thing that we saw them doing last week. They're all together, they're unified, they're devoting themselves to prayer, and they're waiting. They're waiting for the one that God promised would empower them to bear witness. They're waiting for the Spirit of God. And in human history, 9 a.m., the morning of Pentecost, 33 A.D., they would wait no more. An event happened that would literally change human history 
forever. Picture it. They're all crammed in this house. Okay, they're all sitting down, maybe looking at each other. And the sound of a hurricane comes into the house, but there's no wind. And then all of a sudden, these little things that look like tongues on fire come and rest and remain on each one of them. And then they all start speaking completely different languages. This is crazy stuff, right? I mean, that's, that's crazy. But what's even more unbelievable than what happened is the identity of the one who has come. And the text gives us clues. Verse 2 says that this power came down from heaven. Compares him to wind. Wind throughout the scripture shares the same word as spirit. And then this power is compared to fire in verse 3. And we know that fire represents the presence of God, dating all the way back to Moses in the burning bush. The identity of the one who had come was God himself. God had sent his own spirit to rest and remain on these followers of Jesus. Now, think about that. Don't be comfortable with that. Almighty God, who made heaven and earth, has given his own spirit to dwell in believers. It's amazing. Okay, and look at what happens as they're speaking in languages. The sound comes in, verse 6. says, at this sound, the multitude came together. Y'all, and we're talking multiple thousands, based on the fact that 3,000 believed that day. So multiple thousand people come together, and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? So wherever these disciples were gathered in Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem swarms to them like a middle school fight broke out. Right? Some of you aren't laughing because it's been a while since you were in middle school. Now you're laughing because you're, you're mad. So they swarm on these Galileans, and they're shocked. Okay? And, and, and they're shocked because the ones who are speaking in all these foreign languages are known throughout the empire as just being uneducated, ordinary, average Joes. And they're speaking in perfect dialects of these people gathered from all over the world. I mean, the equivalent would be some good old boys from Guyton going up to Times Square and starting to share the gospel in perfect Mandarin and Hindi and Russian and French. That's what's happening here. We're talking major multilingual evangelism. Now, let's hit pause for a minute and, and talk about tongues. Controversial issue. I don't want to camp out here long because it's not the point of the text. The point of the text is that these disciples have been supernaturally empowered by the Spirit of God to bear witness to Jesus, starting in Jerusalem and spreading to the ends of the earth. That's the point of what's going on here. God is doing just what he said he'd do. But tongues raises lots of questions, so let's deal with it quickly. Three quick observations. First is this. It's clear in Acts chapter 2 that what we see is people literally speaking foreign languages. Okay, they're, they're not speaking in some unknown language here. They are literally speaking the languages of the people gathered, down to the specific dialects. And what I think, as we follow the course of redemptive history, what I think is happening here is a reversal of Babel. So if you think about Babel, where man joined together to 
in arrogance, reach up to God, and God judged man and scattered man and, and confused his languages. So now, in this story of redemption, God is coming down to man, he is gathering them, and he is speaking of the mighty works of God in multiple languages. So I think that's ultimately what happened here. But what is clear is that these guys are speaking real different languages. Second thing we need to notice. Um, this is the only place in Scripture that we see the, the gift of tongues in action. We see it mentioned other places, but we never see it demonstrated other places. So this is all we've got to go off of when we see it in action. And then last, and this is where we'll land, and this might upset some of you. Um, lots of godly people have major disagreements about this issue. Some people think tongues is a prayer language. Some think it's an unknown language that demands interpretation. Others think that what you see in Acts 2 is what you get. Um, this is a gray area issue for us. So if you're part of our church, there are room for multiple views. Um, if you want to talk about it, we can, but it's another discussion for another time because the point here is that of all 120 followers of Jesus, every single one of them was filled with the Spirit to bear witness to God the Son. So let's pause here. Let's identify our first missing ingredient. If we want to get back to the original recipe of authentic Christianity, then we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And let me be clear right here. I don't think what happened at Pentecost is the norm for the Christian life. This is a supernatural, special, one-time deal. Right? Even if you are a committed tongue speaker, I'm pretty sure you hadn't had a flame come down and hover over you like a, you're a Zippo or something. Um, this, this is not the norm. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the next time you're at Forsyth Park, you probably will not break into Swahili to share the gospel with somebody, though you might. And, and when I say we need to be empowered by the Spirit, I'm not even making a plea to us for greater supernatural experience. Though, if God brought that, we would eagerly welcome it. And we would be thrilled at his arrival. But what I am saying, you guys, is in our daily lives, most of us know very little of the leadership and the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And as a result, our Christianity is missing the kick that it ought to have. What's your experience of the Holy Spirit? Do you know him? Does he lead you? Does he comfort you? Does he empower you? I've been so convicted this week, you guys, that I have such a shallow experience of the Spirit of God. I so often try to live the Christian life in my own strength. I so often try to do the work of God in my own strength. The, the authentic Christian life is a life that is fueled by the Spirit of God. We need God's Spirit, you guys. We need His power to wake up every day and love Jesus more than we love ourselves. We need His power to kick that addiction that is destroying us. We need the Spirit's power to forgive that person that we're having such a hard time forgiving. We need the Spirit's power to be joyful when our world is crashing down around us. We need the Spirit's power to walk through that door at work. When God opens a door to talk about Jesus, we need the Spirit's power just to even speak of Him. We need the Spirit's power in our marriages to quit being so selfish 
and impatient to love and serve and put our spouse's needs before ours. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our daily Christian lives. If we're not empowered by the Spirit, you guys, our lives are going to be missing the kick that they ought to have. God wants us to be filled with the Spirit. He wants us to walk by the Spirit. He wants to get us back to the original recipe. So if you're like I've been this week and you're wondering, dang, man, what do I do? I hadn't been walking by the Spirit. How do I start? Don't overcomplicate it. This week, every day, as, as it comes to mind multiple times a day, just pray. Lord, help me to yield to your Spirit. Would you lead me? Would you guide me? Would you empower me? I'm surrendering to you. Would you just, Holy Spirit, move through me? And see if God doesn't answer that prayer. I bet he will. Um, and when God answers this prayer, and we do live by the Spirit, here's what's going to happen. We will be more effective witnesses. And as we're more effective witnesses, the people around us will start to notice. It will demand a response, which is exactly what happens in verse 12. It says, and they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. See, the work of the Spirit demanded a reaction. And Peter leveraged this opportunity. And compared the Peter at the day of Pentecost to the Peter seven weeks earlier. Okay, seven weeks earlier, Peter had betrayed Jesus and denied him even to just a little girl. But now, with a crowd of multiple thousands, as Peter's empowered by the Spirit, he leverages this opportunity and he shouts out over the clamoring crowd. And this is what he says. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then Peter goes on to quote Joel chapter 2, which prophesies of the last days. Okay, this era in redemptive history that we're currently in, this last time before Jesus returns to judge the world. And Peter says, we're here. And God has poured out his spirit on all flesh. You remember Joel 2? Well, this that you're witnessing is that. This is it. And now the spirit is for everyone. It's for men and women and boys and girls and old and young. Even servants God has poured his spirit out on. The spirit is no longer just for kings and prophets and priests. God's not going to remove his spirit anymore. We're in the last days. God has given his spirit so that they might, we might bear witness to the Lord Jesus. And Peter makes it crystal clear that the point of the Spirit is not these gifts that Joel lists. Okay, the point is that these gifts enable and empower these followers of Jesus to bear witness about him. Remember the night before Jesus died. Here's what he says to his followers in John chapter 15. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. See, Peter knew that it was his role and the role of the Spirit to bear witness to the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And so what he does in verses 22 through 36 is through history and through Scripture, he tells this huge crowd the truth about Jesus. He basically just shines the light on Jesus. And here's my encouragement to us as we even look at these verses. 
The most important thing that can happen as a result of this sermon, as a result of the Word of God, the Spirit of God, is for us to see Jesus as He rightly is. For us to open up our eyes to His greatness. So let us, as we look at 22 through 36, think about how awesome our Lord is. It's all Peter's after, starting with the life of Jesus all the way through His exaltation. So verse 22, he starts with the life of Jesus. And here's what he says, this huge crowd. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Let's stop there. Peter's saying that Jesus' life, his works, his miracles, all that he did on earth, that was God moving through him, and that was God validating him. Okay, And he told this crowd, many of you guys witnessed it. But but then he quickly moves on from his life to his death, his sin-atoning death. Verse 23. This Jesus, Peter says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here's his point to these guys. Jesus of Nazareth, the one that God validated by all he did, you've killed him. But wait, this was God's plan all along. This was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God allowed you to kill him so that you might be forgiven. This is where Peter's going. So he moves now from his death to his resurrection, verse 24. And now he says to these these guys, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So his point's developing more and more. He's saying to this crowd, this guy who you killed, well, he came back to life. You see, he wasn't going to stay dead. It was not possible for him to stay dead because of who he is. He's the son of God. You got a better chance of taping down a line with scotch tape. right? Jesus came back from the dead. And he's been here the last 40 days until he ascended into heaven 10 days ago. But, but listen, Peter doesn't just use history. He doesn't just use the recent events to explain this to the crowd. He explains it through scripture. And he cites David, Psalm chapter 16, and he says to these guys, this has been the plan all along. In 25 through 28, he cites Psalm 16, and then he basically says to them, look, David's writing about a resurrection. But David's grave is still here. David's still, he's still buried. He was writing about the Messiah. Look at what he says in 31. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. Here's Peter's point. Crowd, the man you recently crucified in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, God has proven him to be the Messiah. He is the promised Messiah, and you've killed him. The scriptures are being fulfilled right in front of your eyes. And then Peter starts to wrap this up in verses 33 through 35. He moves from his resurrection now to his exaltation. Jesus' current station where he is ruling and reigning over the universe. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So again, Peter's using a prophetic psalm to explain what happened, these recent events. And he's saying, David never ascended to heaven. 
But Jesus of Nazareth did, and we saw it. This is about him. And he is the one who has poured out the Spirit on us that you're seeing today. He is the one that is exalted at the right hand of God. He is the one who is currently reigning and ruling over his entire universe. You see, from start to finish, you guys, Peter was all about Jesus. He was obsessed with Jesus. He was more obsessed with Jesus than middle school girls are with Justin Bieber. Way more. He wanted to talk about nothing else. From his life all the way through his exaltation, Jesus was Peter's passion. His message. The early church was enthralled with the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's here that we see the second misingredient in our Christian lives. If we want to get back to the original recipe of authentic Christianity, we need to be all about Jesus. We need to be all about Jesus. If you guys are anything like me, it's easy for you to lose sight of how great he really is. It's easy for us to forget his character. It's easier for us to get what he's done. Again, this week I've been so convicted by my Lack of value on Jesus. Maybe you're there too this morning. Maybe you've grown up in the church and you know all the right answers. You know all the stories. But, but when you see somebody who's moved or affected by Jesus, you wonder what that's all about. Or maybe for you, you had a time in your life where you radically turned from sin and you turned to God. And your heart was filled with an awareness of God's love and forgiveness. And you started to care about other people. But over time, you just kind of drifted back into the way things used to be. Or maybe for you, you've started to value things more than you value Jesus. Maybe you value that next promotion or that next car or that next house more than you value the Savior. Or maybe that's not your problem at all. Maybe your problem is your life is crashing down and your circumstances are killing you and you have taken your eyes off of the Lord of glory and you focus them on all that's going on around you. Whatever the case, most of us have taken our eyes off Jesus. Most of us do not see his value. We're not aware of his greatness. If we were honest, we would say we're not all about him. If any human being was ever all about Jesus, and none of us ever will be until we're with him, but, but up there on the scale, not that there needs to be a scale, that's a dumb idea, um, but I think the Apostle Paul appreciated the awesomeness of Jesus. Let me read a couple verses from Philippians 3. Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, Paul is using monetary language to make the point that Jesus is more valuable. He is worth more than anything or anyone else. In fact, he goes so far as to say that anything else compared to him is rubbish. It's dung. And this doesn't mean that God doesn't give good gifts. I mean, family and friends, and we can list a million good gifts. But he's saying, compared to Christ, 
If you were to hold them up next to one another compared to him, it's rubbish. If somebody were to observe our lives, to study our lives, would they say it's all about Jesus? Would they say, man, that, she's all about Jesus. She loves him. Man, that guy, that guy's a little weird, but he loves Jesus. What would they say you're all about? What's that one thing right now that you're valuing more than Jesus? That's an idol. We need to put that back in its proper place. God's revealed multiple idols to me this week. So don't, I am in no way talking down to you. I hope you feel like I am talking up to you that I am a man filled with idols in my heart and I'm trying to repent of them so that Jesus might be worshiped. That's what we want for this church. If we want to get back to the original recipe, first, we need to be empowered by the Spirit. Second, we need to be all about Jesus. Um, let's get back to Acts 2 for our last ingredient. But before we do, let's immerse ourselves back in the story. So again, Peter is shouting to the crowd. Okay, All these guys are probably clamoring back and forth. Man, do you think that's true? you think we've really done this to Jesus? And then here is Peter's concluding statement. Verse 36, yells out. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. How do you like that for a seeker-friendly message? Yeah, Jesus, the one that you killed, well, he is the promised Messiah, and more than that, he is God himself. And you've killed him. What an error these people had made. Almighty God had been in their midst, walking among them in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And they completely missed it. But not only did they miss it, because he was stirring things up, they killed him. And now they were being convinced that they had made the biggest mistake in world history. They had killed the Son of God. But before we think, how could they? We need to remember this. Jesus didn't die just because in 33 AD there were crowds yelling, crucify him. He died because of me. And he died because of you. In a very real sense, we killed Jesus of Nazareth. It was our sin that held him there. He came to bear the punishment that we deserve. He died because of us. But he didn't just die because of us. He also died for us. He died that we might have to. The Lord of glory left heaven, lived the perfect life, was nailed to a Roman cross by the hands of lawless men under the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was raised from the dead physically, literally, in human history. And then he ascended to heaven where he is exalted at the right hand of God the Father where he currently lives and reigns and offers forgiveness to chumps like me and to people like you. If you're wondering, how do, I, how do I become all about Jesus? You get real familiar with that. 
that the exalted king of heaven would spend his life for you to the point of death. And then would conquer death so that you might be forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christian, we are to respond by worshiping to that. That is good, good news. We should be people who are all about Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, but maybe the Spirit is working on you, because let me tell you, the Spirit is real and He moves in people's hearts, and He might be doing that to you this morning. Maybe you have been convinced that this historical Jesus of Nazareth is who He says He is, that He has died so that you might come back to God. What you need to do is respond just like the crowd responds in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Here's Peter's instructions for the crowd. First, repent. Own your sin. Take responsibility for it. Agree with God about it. And then turn back to God. And then be baptized. Publicly identify yourself as one who's been united to Christ in his death and resurrection and is a follower of him. Be, be welcomed into the people of God. And for those who respond appropriately, here is the promise. Forgiveness of sins. That is, when these last days are over, and God does return to judge. The Christian's sins will be overlooked. He will be counted not guilty. So forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying to the crowd, dude, what you're seeing today, you can get in on this. God, the Holy Spirit, can come and dwell in you, can come in power. You can come confirm that you are his son, can come give you purpose in this life. And this promise was available to everyone, to the Jews who were near, to those who were far, the Gentiles. The promise is available. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen to me right now. We are very, very glad you're here. And I would plead with you to receive this gift and to do just what Peter has instructed, because this is still true. And so some of you need to see, man, I have been sinning against God. I need to turn back to him. And when you do, my friend, and when you put your faith in King Jesus, your sins will be forgiven, and he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. I promise you, many of us have experienced it. It is as good as it gets. I hope you will trust him today. Now, let's quickly address the issue of baptism, okay, verse 38, because it looks like here Peter might be saying that baptism is necessary in order for someone to be forgiven. It's not the case. Quick rule of Bible interpretation. We need to interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear. Okay? What is very clear in the scriptures, and even five times at least in the book of Acts, forgiveness and salvation is offered freely, completely apart from baptism. Throughout the scriptures, salvation is by grace, through faith. We believe, we bring nothing else to the table, God forgives. It's the best transaction ever. Um, But what Peter's after when he encourages these guys to Uh, be baptized is to publicly identify with Christ and then to demonstrate outwardly what has already happened for them inwardly, to to publicly repent and to be welcomed into the people of God. Um, And we believe here at this church, um, and we would encourage you to search the scriptures for yourself, but 
um, that every Christian should be baptized after conversion. And so if you're here this morning, the Spirit's working on your heart. Whether you're a new believer or you've been a Christian a long time but have never been baptized, we would encourage you guys to publicly identify with Christ as one of his followers. As you go under the water, this symbolizes his death and your death with him. Say, I've been joined with Christ in his death, and I've been raised with him in newness of life. And I want to make a public proclamation about what has happened inside of me, that I'm a part of the people of God now. We hope that you will take that step. And if you want to, uh, next week we have a class to talk about baptism, and in two weeks we'll be doing baptisms, and they're the coolest services of the year. By far. So if God is working on you this morning, talk to us about that. We would love to to celebrate with you. This is what Peter challenged his crowd with, and look what happened. God acted with major power. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Church grew about 25 times. Started with 120 people, added 3,000. And notice how God did it. He used uneducated, ordinary Galileans. Guys who were empowered by the Spirit, people who were all about Jesus, and then last, people who expected God to move. And for us, this is the last ingredient we need to add if we want to get back to the original recipe. We need to expect God to move. We need to expect God to move. I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that we see such a different Peter now that he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, one of the main reasons we see him speaking with such boldness and such clarity and such fearlessness is because he expected that God would use it. And God did. Friend, do you expect God to move? Do we we really expect God to move in our church? Do you expect God to move in your life? Do you expect him to move in your marriage or in the lives of your kids? Do you you expect him to move at work or on your campus? Do you expect him to even answer prayers? Again, I have been so convicted this week that I live such a shallow Christian life and I do not expect God to move. And if God answered every single one of my prayers, there's not a whole lot that would change. And I'm ashamed of that. We have an enormous God who loves to move. But so often we settle for a Christian experience without the kick because we don't think he'll do anything. We don't tell people about Jesus because we think, nah, man, that that guy, he's he's too far gone. He's hardened. It'd be a waste of time. Or we don't believe that God will answer our prayers to heal that person or to mend the pain that rages in our heart or to give us joy when everything else is crumbling down. Or we don't think God will help us overcome that struggle. We don't think he'll work in our work setting. We don't think he'll fix our marriage or bring back that kid or mend that relationship. We don't think he'll actually empower us or give us the courage to do what he's calling us to do. But friends, what are we missing? What are we missing when we don't think God will move? I mean, when we don't expect God to move, guess what? He's probably not going to move. I mean, in his grace, he might move. In in spite of our 
stubborn hearts. We have a God that is that gracious. But friends, we have a God who loves to act in human history. He loves to interject in people's lives. He loves to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. The problem is not his willingness to move. The problem is our unbelief that that he'll never do it. As we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see God move powerfully over and over and over again. Friend, this is our God. It's the same God, still alive, still on the throne at the right hand of God, still working with power. Wouldn't it be great to not only read about him, but to experience him? Wouldn't it be great for him to move in our lives and in our church and in this city? When we expect him to move, I have a feeling that he just might do it. After the first time that uh, Victoria tried to make her dad's chili, we had to fix that. So she called up her dad. And uh, they started talking about the recipe, and pretty quickly it became clear that she had forgotten the jalapenos. I'm thinking, baby, of course there's no jalapenos, there's no kick, that's what we're missing. But isn't that us in the Christian life? Sometimes we miss the most obvious ingredients. And then we wonder why we have such a different experience than what we see in the scripture. The original recipe, you guys, is simple. We need to be empowered by the Spirit of God. We need to be all about Jesus, and we need to expect God to move. So here's how I want us to respond. Three ways. First, the first thing we need to do before God is just repent to him that we've wandered. We have not yielded to his Spirit. We have not worshipped him as he deserved, and we have not expected that he would act. We need to own that and repent for it. But then secondly, we need to pray, right? And we need to ask him to help us, because we, we can do none of this unless he does it. Right? We're powerless. We're, we're dust. You guys know. But with God's help, we can be empowered by the Spirit. We can be all about Jesus, and we can expect him to move. And then last, let's worship. And let's worship the God who is exalted uh, in heaven, who is ruling his universe, who is still giving his Spirit so that our Christianity might have a kick. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you're so gracious with us. We, we acknowledge that we don't deserve it. We thank you for your unlimited patience with us. Um, and we own the fact, God, that we have, not, we have not been led by your spirit. We've, we've not worshiped Jesus as we ought to. We've not trusted that you would move in our lives. I pray that you would help us to correct that. I pray that you would increase our faith in you, increase our passion for you, so that we might live lives that demand a response. Uh, We thank you again for your sacrifice for us. We thank you that you are in control of all things as Lord of heaven, and our hope is in you. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.